This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Snark Monkey number 28. Oh, this is exciting. It's Peter Siegel. Thank you, big-time movie director Peter Siegel, for taking time out of your busy schedule to finally do the Snark Monkey podcast. For your best friend, I'm using air quotes very vigorously right now. Nah, Pete's been busy, and I have been wanting to save him until I kind of get the snark monkey rolling a little bit. And also, the timing is perfect, and we talk about this. It happens to be the 20th anniversary of the release of certainly one of the most beloved comedies of the 90s, and maybe the movie that gets mentioned the most in the entire oeuvre of Mr. Siegel thus far, and that is Tommy Boy, which was only his second film he directed, but continues to be one that people bring up all the time. He has some great stories to tell about Chris Farley and the anniversary of that, as well as many other things. I have known Pete since, I want to say, preschool? (laughs) Back in 1980, we were in preschool together. Yeah, nobody's buying that. It was freshman year of college at the University of Southern California. We met in the dorms. We were both somehow talked into taking what was called at the time thematic option, which was kind of this honors program for incoming freshmen who had decent high school grades. I maintain, I I hate to speak for Pete, but I think he might agree with this. We were probably the dumbest kids in the group of smart kids. Because we, boy, we were like learning trigonometry in four days and and calculus in three minutes. I mean, it was just this intensive program that uh, neither one of us were necessarily that well equipped for. So we spent a lot of time siphoning, siphoning off the information of others. And there might have been a little cheating, um, but we passed and and the rest is history. I was in film school. He was a broadcast journalism major. Somehow I ended up in radio, and he ended up directing movies. It's just weird where life takes you. But we have remained very close friends ever since then, and it is a joy to talk to him about uh, where he came from, how he came up, what he's been going through, uh, the, the way the business has changed, and, yes, reminiscing a bit about Tommy Boy and um, how he got to where he got. This is fun. He's a good friend. I'm delighted to present the director of uh, Naked Gun 33 and a Third, Tommy Boy, Nutty Professor 2, My Fellow Americans, uh, Adam Sandler's The Longest Yard, Anger Management, and Fifty First Dates, Get Smart, and most recently Grudge Match, and it sounds like some pretty cool stuff to come. Not to mention a bunch of TV work that he's done that and commercials and stuff that we just don't have time to cover at all. Here he is for Snark Monkey, episode number 28, Peter, is it Seagal? Peter Seagal, Pete Seagal.
wherever you can. Close to the mouth. I've heard you say uh, that how many, before. How many times have I said <laughs> that Usually to you? in the dark. <laughs> let's let's do what we can to keep this as... Yeah, give me the parameters. Uh, Are you R-rated? You can say anything you want. R-rated? I, I'm just going to personally ask that we keep it... Let's dial back the homoeroticism like Fine. 20%. From my usual <laughs> yes, commentary? from our <laughs> usual. Pull that down just a little bit in front of you. Now lick it. <laughs> okay. Oops. You know what? I just broke what my own rule. What did you just say? Um, what's great about this is that you have nothing to promote right now as far as I can tell. Are Which, we rolling? Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, okay. we have been rolling the whole time. Oh, okay. Um, at least I don't think so. So that I've you don't, always got stuff to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I know. Later. You probably do. But you don't have to feel like you don't have a publicist breathing down your neck. No. Nope. You can talk bad about people. Can I talk you bad can, about you? You can say anything you want about me. Hmm. But nobody's going to care. <laughs> <laughs> Let's. Do, I want to start uh, topic one because this is the most timely-ish. Uh, you just celebrated an anniversary with Tommy Boy, oh, yeah. um, which was I got to. I I have to comment on the fact that it kind of came together very quickly, and it wasn't an organized event. But you and many of the creative people, well, a, a handful of of the guys who were involved in some way in producing or editing or whatever, and mostly they're your friends, um, and you've ended up working with them since that time, all attended that screening at the New Beverly Cinema on uh, on, on Beverly, uh, which was a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was taken with just, like, the glee that you all were exhibiting like it was your first movie all over again. <laughs> I mean, you guys were genuinely pleased to see it up on the marquee and you were you were you were downright giddy about just that people were still wanting to see it and i know people bring up that movie to you all the time they do they do and this one kind of came out of the blue because i there was a lot done for the 10th anniversary and i wasn't really watching the calendar uh and suddenly all of these tweets came in and these requests for interviews. Uh, and I said, why now? What's going on? Yeah. They said they literally were marking the date uh, of the release 20 years ago. Right. And we found out accidentally that Tarantino at his theater, the New Beverly, were screening the movie. And they yeah, asked they're me. they're doing a series of his favorite like 90s films. Yeah, and how and cool the, is the that? Print, print actually came from his personal collection. And <laughs> we, one of the reasons we were excited is because that literally on the marquee we're promoting in 35 millimeter. Yeah. I have not seen a 35 millimeter print of Tommy Boy since the premiere. Right. Um, so that was amazing. And the fact that people turned out, place was packed, and they cared and are asking. For interviews 20 years later, that has just been, you know, a total surprise. And a really cool thing that just happened, um, one of the places that uh, the the outlets that asked for an interview was the Sandusky Register, the paper in Sandusky, Ohio. And yeah, because the film takes the place film in takes Sandusky. Pl- the story takes place right. there. And we never shot in Ohio. Right. We faked it in Toronto. So they called and they, they did an interview and, and they asked a lot of questions about why I chose Sandusky. And quite frankly, I can't really remember why we chose Sandusky, but it, it we wanted to do a story that took place in the Rust Belt and did reflect, you know, a right. part of America that was dying and set it, you know, and it was like this kind of. I, I, I can imagine, if knowing how your head works, it was like there's the perfect kind of solid Midwestern exactly. name. Exactly. You know? Well, like the original people... title of Tommy Boy was 
uh, Billy the Third, a Midwestern. Mm-hmm. But at the time, uh, Billy Madison was also being filmed, so only one Billy SNL movie could stand, so we changed our name. But anyway, so I get uh, a hard copy of the paper sent to me in an envelope last week, and literally there are six stories on the front page the 20th anniversary of, of Tommy Boy on the front page and a special section. And I'm I'm so proudly kind of putting this out on the kitchen table. And my wife looks at it and she said, yeah, that's cute. It's the Sandusky Register. <laughs> I'm like, really? Can you just give me a minute give me to shine a flashlight on my forehead for 10 seconds? But, but you are no. getting, you have been talking about how people have... You, you have continually been surprised about who brings up this movie. And, yeah. I mean, when I, after I went to that screening that night, I mentioned it to one of my bosses here. And he is younger than us, but not that much younger. And he's, he said something like, my all-time favorite movie. And I'm like, what? Really? Yeah. And And not because the movie doesn't deserve it, but because... I know you don't think of it that way. I mean, what's your all-time favorite movie? Mine? Yes. Well, uh, The Godfather 2. Okay. So put The Godfather 2 up against Tommy Boy. I mean, it's like, but but it has impacted people in that way. And I think that one of the things, I, I didn't get to stay for the full screening, but one of the things that immediately hit me about the movie is, oh my God, Chris Farley was fucking funny as hell. Oh my God, yeah. Pete! Yeah. I mean, just just movements, physicality, mm-hmm. the way his the the scene where he checks his grade and it's the yeah. delay, and I got it, I passed. You know that whole thing, and the and then he does the freaking cartwheel in yeah. the hallway. It's like, oh my God! I start, yeah. I personally started missing him, and I never got to meet the man. That's amazing. He, he literally uh, was the funniest person I've ever met, definitely that I've ever worked with. And that's no slight to the guys like Sandler and Spade and Chris Rock, who were all office mates of his at SNL. Right. They will say the same thing. Oh, yeah. Well, and they do. You know, you, you go to a restaurant with Chris, and he would perform for the whole place. And you'd be crying with laughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was that kind of guy. But you talk about that scene where he did the cartwheels, you know, after checking his grades. And I remember the day because... Chris and I had an interesting relationship. You know, we were both athletes growing up, and he was very much, uh, he was clean, he was sober at the time of Tommy Boy. Not before, not after, obviously, but at the time he, he was sober, and so adrenaline and caffeine are what fueled him. Yeah. And he would get so amped up that I remember in that scene, he was messing up his lines, and I would just often tell him, drop and give me 20. I mean, you've got to work off some of the steam. Yeah. Take a lap around the courtyard. He'd go, yes, sir. And he'd do it. He'd come back breathing hard. He'd calm down. And we'd do the next take. And that, I don't have any relationship like that with it. Robert De Niro won't do that. You know, Jack Lemmon didn't do that. But Chris Farley did that. You know, and All right, that was I'm gonna, how we work. Hold on a second. Just, uh, we're, occasionally we're going to go off into riff land here, okay? And then we'll get back to that. I'm going to be you. You're going to be Robert De Niro, and we're going to have that interaction. You ready? Uh, yeah, uh, Bob, uh, you know, that scene didn't go quite that well. C- could you, you know, here, here's an idea. Drop and give me 20. Huh? Uh, you know, drop and give me 20, you know. G- give me 20 push-ups. Burn off some of that energy. I am not, not following. Yeah, I just want you to get on the ground and just, like, do 20 push-ups. Burn that energy off. So you think I'm funny? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Uh, I... 
Well, yeah, you're very funny. You're funny in this movie. I'm just, just, you know what? Is that you your cell phone? <laughs> no, I think. Well, that was my cell phone. Then it's allowed. <laughs> okay. And see. Um, that's so funny. I, uh, yeah. No, the thing about Bob is my impression, an act- a, a very accurate impression of yeah. Bob would be silence. <laughs> like you're giving him tons of direction? He would just look at you and you go, I know I'm an idiot. I will never ask that again. <laughs> it would just rebound right off the face. <laughs> because you know what you're doing. You're looking at the guy that is in your favorite movie of all time. And yes. he kind of knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, my, my favorite, though, was uh, uh, working with Jack Nicholson on uh, anger, anger management. management. Uh, I remember this one day, Sandler, uh, we were all intimidated by working with him. He was the most intimidating actor. Bob is a very different kind of person, you know. Because and, he's not in your face. No, no. He, and by not... the way, Jack is a very nice guy, too. It's just the persona. There's an energy about him. The, he sucks totally the oxygen different. out of a room. Yeah. And, you know, giving any, I wouldn't even say a note, but a suggestion to that man. And by the way, they both won equal number of Oscars, two sure. apiece. Yeah. And I don't know about the Golden Globes. I'm sure they're tied there, too. But it's just a different kind of vibe. And it you just hear every vibration come out of your mouth and you realize how stupid it must sound, <laughs> you know, to those ears that they're hearing, that are hearing it. So um, anyway. That's well. You have done this to yourself. I mean, you've put yourself in a position of working with really big personalities. I was kind of just in thinking about the movies that you've done. Um, it's it's just almost without without exception. You know, Chris obviously was big personality, but wasn't a huge huge star yet, no. and and it, but was about to peak. You know, it's yeah. like Tommy Boy probably helped push him to that next level, yeah. uh, and certainly the best movie he ever did. Um, but, you know, everybody from, like, you had, you've had you had to give direction to Jack Lemmon and Lauren Bacall and, uh, you know, Nicholson and uh, Robert De Niro. I love bringing up OJ, just because that's fun yep. to include. Not in a lot whole... of people in that club. <laughs> no, that's right. Do you, if you knew then what you know now, would you be ordering OJ around a set? I'll tell you the craziest story. Um, we were on the set of Naked Gun, and George this is thirty three and a third. Thirty three and a third. The final right. insult. Right. No one ever gets that whole name correct. I never remember that. Um, and he is showing George Kennedy a Swiss Army knife, and I go up to him, and I I had worked right. You know, I went to USC with you. We're roommates, as you know. And then later, I got to work with Bob Chandler, who was a you know Hall of Famer at uh, SC, and then was OJ's teammate. Uh, for nine seasons in Buffalo. And so I had really grown up idolizing O.J. and heard a lot about him through Bob and so forth. And so here I am getting to work with him on the set. And, you know, sometimes certain athletes transcend fame and become like gods to even actors. And so there's George Kennedy, Oscar winner himself for Cool Hand Luke. And he's looking, marveling at this huge Swiss Army knife with a clock on it. (laughs) And I come up and I say, wow, that is cool. And O.J. says, want one? And I said, no, I'm just, that's a, that's just a cool knife. He goes, sir, here, take it. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I've got a whole trunk full of them. I'm on the board for Swiss Army Knife. Oh, wow. So I take the knife gratefully and uh, graciously and um, cut to right after the movie is out. Within six weeks, I'm now prepping Tommy Boy after the release of Naked Gun, and he's arrested. And as you know, the saw blade of a Swiss Army Knife was eventually the weapon. Mm Mm-hmm. And I realized, holy Christ, I have 
a knife given to me by O.J. Simpson. Obviously not the same one, but the knife is in my car. Uh, it's My car is burglarized in front of my house. The knife is stolen. The cop says, can you tell me, you know, all of the things that were stolen? Even if it's a Pavarotti CD, give me as many specifics as possible, because if we find them in some kid's car, you might actually get it back. Yeah. So I go through the this and that and the By other the way, thing. how much Pavarotti are you listening to <laughs> in, in your car? So, you know, uh, occasionally. <laughs> okay, all right. So I, I get to the, and I say, and I had a Swiss Army knife that was given to me by O.J. Simpson. Long pause by the cop, because the O.J. trial is going on yes. at this moment. Yes. And he looks at me and says, uh, were there any inscriptions on the knife? And I said, yeah. It said, Pete, hold on to this till things blow over juice. No, there were no <laughs> inscriptions. <laughs> it's just my knife. So my wife goes out and buys me. By the way, me. cops love jokes like yes, that. <laughs> they love O.J. jokes. That one actually did go over pretty oh, okay, well. okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, she buys me a replica knife. I said, you know, it's just not the same. But I have my replica, oh, OJ Knight. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, very weird. That is weird. I'm surprised they didn't haul you in just to question you on exactly there what... There were questions. Really? There were questions. Uh, there was a uh, 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 an, uh, an on-campus little short that the Zuckers did uh, trying to get you know support from for doing a Naked Gun 3. And so they did a little video with OJ in it, a little spoof to give to the brass to say, hey, let's get excited about the threequel. And in it, there was O.J. brandishing a knife and pretending to stab one of the executives. It was a joke, completely out of context. This was years, two years before it happened. Right. But they dug it up around the trial, and it said, uh, you know, wanted to know where the knife was, wanted to know who thought of this. You know, so we got, you know, there were questions. Yikes. Yeah. So, uh, going back to my question about working with like really big names, big personalities, Larry Morgan. Sure, I mean you've worked with me twice, and uh, <laughs> we had our own issues. Yeah. But when you said drop and give me twenty a minute, whole, it's a whole different, different thing. thing. <laughs> Yay! There we go. You said you weren't going to go there. Uh, that's our twenty. You didn't want me to go there. That's our twenty percent. All right. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> drop and give me twenty. <laughs> Uh, you're sick. Oh, it's, it, that'll be our callback. Let's yeah. find a way to get back to it at the yeah. end. I'll give you a cue. I'll give you one of these, one of the sting noses. Um, but that's you. You know what you're doing to yourself at that point because you want that kind of cast. But you also are dealing with really strong personalities and people who have been around forever and know how to act. I mean, Jack Lemmon must have been a certain kind of challenge. You know, Robert oh. De Niro is a certain kind of challenge. But you, but you seem to embrace that. It's like I want the best possible actor for that part, with no matter what the pedigree may be. I'll, I'll deal with it. Yeah, I, I have expensive taste, you know, <laughs> in those kind of people. Um, and it's great when you're in the process. The adrenaline is flowing, and everyone's it's it's a communal art. Everyone's contributing to it. But there are those occasional moments. Like I remember we were shooting. Uh, a scene at the Biltmore downtown with Jack Lemon and Lauren Bacall, and I went up, and I was, uh, and I gave Jack a suggestion about, you know, how the line, how it, I thought it might sound, in terms of uh, just a, a kind of attitude, and he said, uh, that, "That's good, kid. That that's a good uh, piece of direction. You know, uh, Ford would say things like that to me, and I'd be like, oh my god, you know, I, <laughs> it, this, this." 
you know, the iconography of these people. Right. And I realized, no, I'm not really communal. I'm not an artist with these guys. I'm a peon, and I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> that was his not-so-subtle reminder of, I've been around for a while, buddy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you got to stop doing that. You got to start working with more unknown people that you Believe can push me. around. Believe me. Uh, <laughs> I, don't I know it. Let's let's go all the way back. You and I have talked about this before. We actually have somewhere in the archives a, a, a podcast that I never aired for some reason. I, you know, the world wasn't ready for us yet. The world is ready for us now. So I'm going to go over much traveled territory, but we'll do it quickly. Where were you born? New York. You're a New Yorker. You still feel that way too, right? Kind of yes. a, in a way. Yes. You feel attached to it. Yes. My daughter was just living there, working at Thirty Rock, and I felt very nostalgic. You know, going back to visit her, because in a way, she now has some roots of her own there, too. And you were there how long? Eight years total, five in Manhattan, three in Mamaroneck. Mamaroneck. Yeah. Tell me about growing up in New York. Your parents, ha you have such an interesting background in terms of what your parents did. Um, I got to know Mort pretty well, and I've met your mom a couple of times. Your dad was involved in the industry. Yes. He a, was the uh, head of worldwide advertising and publicity for MGM for 11 years. Yes. And so when we uh, lived in New York, he was at MGM at the time. He was moved to uh, what is now the Sony lot out here in Culver City when that was MGM and had a back lot. He would bring home 35 millimeter prints of James Bond. I remember uh, Diamonds Are Forever we watched in our basement in New York. <laughs> they don't have basements in California, but in New York, huge basements, like the footprint of your house, you had as like this bonus room. Right. There were bunkers. They're made out of cement. Right. But we had a bed Usually sheet storage up. or something. But storage, yeah. yeah. The bed sheets were up, an old rotten couch, and we watched <laughs> these prints. It was fantastic. That's great. So, um, so obviously the industry part of your life as far as that goes. And you were a movie lover just naturally right yeah i i had no idea at all that i would wind up doing this but absolutely like like every kid you know i was lost in movies you know when i was growing up and the fact that occasionally things like uh you know an academy award would wind up on our kitchen counter one morning when my dad accepted for uh sarah miles uh ryan's daughter she won for best supporting actress and um you know, he got to bring it home, and I had watched the Oscars the night before. I was I think I was nine or ten, and then the next morning, there it is on the kitchen counter. You know, no uh, trumpets blowing or anything. There, there it is. Boom. Sit next to the loaf of bread and the yeah. peanut butter. <laughs> and so they're heavy. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was kind of cool. And then I remember around that time I made my first movie on uh, Super Eight, Lost in Space. Uh, I took a Frisbee, and I put a string through it, and that was my spaceship. And there was a, uh, a house next door to us that had, this is very 70s, white uh, rock, pebbly roof. And that was Mars, or the moon. <laughs> and then I had an old train set with a huge control panel and up in this attic with the black tar paper, and the tar paper was space, and the control panel for the train set was, you know, my rocket ship. And shot this thing, and I made a spacesuit out of uh, garbage bags. Paper bags. Oh my God! If it was yeah. only still that easy, I, right? Yeah. And my dad edited it, and that was cool. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Does that exist anywhere? It Can does. You? I transferred it. Boy, I'll tell you, you, you know, we haven't transferred half of our our family films. They're going to turn to dust pretty soon. I'm getting you a lot of to transfer. I'm getting a lot stuff. of pressure to do that for my sister because this, there's a certain era of stuff. I don't know if you've experienced this, but like. 
not even Super 8, the old high like, eight. 8 millimeter stuff. Yeah. Um, actually, the older it is, the more it holds up. It's just as as materials got cheaper yeah. um, and they got, you know, Kodak decided, oh, we can do that for like half the money. It's like it becomes all brittle and yeah. just kind of falls yep. into pieces. Yeah. Oh, it's killing. No, I know. But I, I was fortunate enough. I did transfer that little short. I have no idea where it is. But I did transfer it, so it's at least uh, one generation safer on, okay, on the DVD. Yeah. Well, we have a clip of it right now. <laughs> we're gonna... Let's bring in Phil Tkachin, who played your astronaut. <laughs> you remember your cast. Yes. Um, I had a space epic growing up as well. We had a, a World War II epic that we shot in the back alleys of uh, Odessa, Texas, standing in for a war-torn Germany, which is always... I think this rings a bell. You might have shown it to Do me. you think so? Oh, God, I hope not. In college. Um, and I, I, you know, did a private detective thing. Do you remember the films that we shot? You were in my TV projects, yes. and I was in your films. Uh, you were in my very first USC. Um, it was shot on Super 8. It was a silent, non-sync film, and we just slapped a song on it. And, yeah, you were a, a pickpocket, right? Yeah. Yeah, I shot several for you. Yeah, you did several. You were good. You were a pickpocket. You were also in more of a like a Twilight Zoney one that I did, mm-hmm. where there was a, a ghost uh, that you were picking up on your camera every time you shot pictures of the ocean, and there was this yes, figure. I remember there that was this incident you, happening. You inexplicably had me shoot that whole thing with my shirt off. I didn't ever understand that. <laughs> I, that my, was your experimental phase. My memory is you insisted <laughs> that you take your shirt off. No, actually, that I was, insisted I keep it on. No, you had actually just had like knee surgery or something around that time, and oh, so yeah. and I and I was just like slave driving you through this thing. <laughs> I don't care. Stop hobbling. What are you doing? <laughs> Be good. Yeah. Uh, good times. Uh, oh, good times. God, really? <laughs> um, so when you uh, when did you get up? Oh, uh, your mom uh, yes. had a completely different sort of background in show business. Mom and dad met in England when dad was stationed there during the Korean War, and she was a fashion model, a mm-hmm. top model. She was on the cover of Vogue and Harper's, and um, she uh, did a, a private show for the Queen. Uh, and uh, so she was kind of a big deal. She was 17 when she started modeling and oh. I think moved to New York with my dad in her early 20s. And continued to model through continued as to model, long as she could? Uh, yeah, after even I was born. I was the second of four. And then I think uh, after I was born, she kind of slowed down. And then uh, my father, for a brief moment, uh, produced a couple of plays that did not uh, go well off-Broadway, one with Walter Matthau. Um, and, uh, so that's how every now and then we'd be walking on in Riverside park. And I do remember once, uh, Walter with his stroller filled with Charlie Mathau bumping into, you know, my dad and me, <laughs> I do have this image. Walt Siegel, how are you? Walter. And we would end up at USC when Charlie Mathau was going yeah. to school there. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. He was just a couple of years behind us. Mm-hmm. Funny. Um, when did you get uprooted and moved out of New York? 1970, Dad was relocated to the Culver lot, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the coolest thing, my memories of visiting my dad, who at the time, you know, I obviously got to know and work with um, Amy Pascal on three movies at Sony, working with Adam Sandler, Uh, my dad had her office, and that was really weird. The one she's... that At the time, she moved to a couple different offices, but one of her earlier offices was my father's. And uh, when I would visit my dad, there was the MGM backlot, which is now 
and has been uh, because of you know Kerkorian selling off the, right. the back lot, now condominiums. But it was where, if you remember those movies, um, That's Entertainment, where all the wraparounds were filmed, and it was the Esther Williams pool. One whole block was Paris. One whole block was New York. One whole area was the Western set. And I would ask my dad, I said, can I go across Jefferson and get lost for the afternoon? He goes, yeah, just don't get in trouble. And I would go, and <laughs> oh. they'd get a guard to let me in. And I, would, I was this 11- or 12-year-old kid at the time, lost in this world. And I would remember going up to every brick and knocking on it to see if it was real or fake. <laughs> and, you know, the bricks were made out of wood and sometimes cardboard. And that was the coolest. It was literally like I was Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes, looking at this deserted landscape. Yeah. For a kid with an imagination, you are placed in it, – it's, it's kid in a candy store at that point, yeah. but literally. It's just literally, like yeah. a, a imagination going yeah. a 1,000 miles yeah. per hour, and yeah. so you were playing every possible oh, scenario absolutely. you could. Oh, it, By the way, you still do that. Well, there's no back lot to do it on. No, but I, when you get a chance to be on a back lot, oh, like I do, the way yeah. you've taken me, you know, around Universal and in yeah. in the in the cart at night. With how the, is it? How can you not, first of all, get excited about the the possibilities in these empty city streets that are made for movie making, but also trying to just remember and imagine all of the great movies that were shot in those locations. The cool thing about Warner Brothers now is they put a huge, big brass plate right. on the front of each soundstage. They memorialized it, yeah. And they memorialize and they say what movies have been shot on stage. And there's three of sound stages that, you know, now get smart uh, is, is on the bronze plaque, but on the same plaque is My Fair Lady. Yeah. You Was know? It Casablanca? Casablanca. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark on the big soundstage 16 and it's just that's what is amazing. I'm glad that they embraced the history of what's gone on at the lot because it kills me to think about the the MGM thing. MGM where... is is travesty. I mean, you look at the size of the Universal Studios backlot, which is a the I think one of the best parts of going to Universal Studios is to take the backlot tour. The rides are great, but the tour is amazing. And MGM had a bigger backlot. Yeah. Bigger. And it's gone. Didn't we get to go tour it um, when we were in college before? We... Yes, we did. Yes. Uh, Shamifo came from that. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> well, what does Shamifo mean, Lair? <laughs> well, it's your story. I would hate to take it away from uh, you. I remember driving. I can tell the story if you want from my perspective. I, you know, no, I'll tell it better. <laughs> um, but I remember it's driving. I'll, t- I'll us. tell it correctly. <laughs> I was driving. A group of us yeah. to the back lot. You had got access to get a like a because they didn't really give a lot no, of tours. No, it's, of it's more like just unlock the gate, go in. Yeah, you're on your own. And uh, someone pulled out, uh, made a lane change right into us on the 10 freeway, and I thought I was going to die. And the I just screamed out, "Shit ass motherfucker!" <laughs> and you just paused and then started howling with laughter. <laughs> Because if my last words were <laughs> "shit ass motherfucker," but it's more like one word, right? And then you kept teasing me, and it became "shamafo," shit ass motherfucker. Well, it, it, it was the juxtaposition of uh, like just they, mom- they don't make sense. Just moments before Shit-ass. you had just been very calmly. We had been talking. It was a conversation. Then yeah. it was just this shit ass mother. I mean, it was yeah. before the term "road rage" had even yeah. been coined. <laughs> you know, I, was, there was some it, bottled it was up shit the there. Yeah. Perfect case yeah. of that. And yeah. it's just you are the type. 
that transforms when you get behind the wheel. Oh, you yeah. are a completely different human being. Do you remember shopping for groceries together, what we would do? <laughs> yes. Okay, you can tell that part. Well, it's a it's a collective thing. Well, it's, it's a, rooming know. with you was you were actually the only person I could tolerate because we had so much fun. But I remember going through. Yeah, you would liked. trail me with the shopping cart, right? And I would just take groceries off the shelf and just lob them without looking. <laughs> no look lobs over my head, right. and you would have to catch everything, right? There's and little, I would just keep throwing shit up in the air. If you watch the uh, <laughs> opening titles to Bosom Buddies, the old Tom Hanks, Peter Scolari, th- they actually do that in that opening. We were ahead of our time oh, as far as that goes. Okay. But then we'd have a little dialogue, too. like um, uh, We need it, cat food. Uh, we need a cat. <laughs> and we were entertaining ourselves to no end and absolutely no one else. No one laughed <laughs> but us. Um, and you're right about the whole roommate thing because I... I think you tolerated my BS and and vice versa way better than my wife tolerates my BS. I remember not tolerating your beard trimmings in the sink. <laughs> you had a beard. People don't know that you had a beard for most of your life. And you would <laughs> yes, trim it. Since I was three, I think I had it. Only, uh, well, prolific. for many years you had a beard and yeah. you would trim it. And uh, that it looked like someone had murdered a goat they're, in the sink. They're hard to contain. All right, all right, Felix Unger. I'm sorry. Oh, it had nothing to do with Felix. It was more like we needed, like you know, a leaf blower to contain it. Okay, you're exaggerating. Let's talk more about your uh, your uh, difficult personality. Where were we? We we were we had moved to oh um one one other thing about the MGM tour that you took us on besides uh, shit ass motherfucker um, which has now been shortened to Shamafo Shamafo yeah <clears throat> um when I remember distinctly when we were there I because I was just taking it all in because I don't think I'd had access to a, a studio like that before uh, there were some cars there and some signs with um like reserved there were really nice cars and there was a little like at that point just like a placard or a piece of paper on it that said uh reserved for production a boy's life and i because i was such a big movie nerd i knew that spielberg was on that lot shooting something that was oh that was the original title of et right they became et that was their that was the title they were hiding it under a boy's life right uh and i remember distinctly because they shot that there am i Mm. am i totally wrong about that at Sony, I'm not sure. At MGM, I do know that uh, it was shot at the uh, uh, the ranch. They call it. It was a housing tract right, out right. in the valley. Right. Uh, you know, off the two ten. They must have been doing some interior stuff in there, or yeah. sets, or something. Yeah. Right. I'll look that up. But I, I have a distinct memory of that mm-hmm. that I probably made up. Um, so you get out to California. Um, uh, no, you're. Are, are you living in California at that time? Uh, yes, we moved out in '70. We moved to Brentwood. Our next door neighbor was Richard Widmark, the uh, <laughs> actor, and um, we nobody, lived there for a couple knows years. Who Richard Widmark, they is. don't. But then we moved just before my parents split up when I was about 15. We moved to Hidden Hills, and this is kind of interesting. Our next door neighbor uh, was Richard Matheson, who Ooh, wrote the writer. Yeah. Yes, who wrote. Um, you know Spielberg's one of his or his second movie Duel. I guess it maybe it was before Sugarland Express, right? Duel. Yep. Yep. And um, he wrote many of the Twilight Zones. Uh, you know The Incredible Shrinking Man, I Am Legend, which became the Will Smith movie. Right. Um, and uh, we were in what's called the back gate of Hidden Hills. Behind us were just open fields, and they were where they filmed uh, 
the part of the chariot race for Ben-Hur and um, Charge of the Light Brigade. This is an early, early films. Uh, right around the time we moved, uh, Lisa Marie Presley bought the house next to us. And we had a fairly large, you know, not small ranch, three and a half acres. It had a, a riding ring and a stable. Um, she ended up, after we left, she bought our house for her staff. Um, she combined then the two properties and built a huge estate, which most recently was purchased by Kanye and Kim. Oh, is that yes. one in Calabasas yes, that people that was, talk about? Our land is, I think, their vineyard now. But that's where I <laughs> lived for three years of my life. Oh, good lord! In their backyard. Yes. <laughs> so you became. How did? So you became an equestrian at one point. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I was a, a national champion when I was eleven. Wow. Yeah. How did you get into that? Was my, it mom? Mom and dad. Uh, when we were still in Brentwood. Um, uh, met a man named Aegon Mers. Now, a lot of people uh, don't know who he is, but he passed away a few years ago, uh, an old German man, but he trained Elizabeth Taylor for National Velvet. And he has about 50 acres in Malibu across from Jeffries. And he also had um, a facility in Sullivan Canyon. And he gave us our first horse and taught uh, me and my big sis, Erica, how to ride. And um, uh, and that's where it began. And then we moved out to Hidden Hills, and we trained with uh, the Karasisi brothers five days a week, showed every Sunday. And um, that was the life I knew. And I, you know, all, my whole life involved hanging around girls, but this was pre-puberty, so it was wasted on me. <laughs> and But I was like the only guy riding, you know. It was, it was a female-driven sport until I got a little bit older. And oh, then, that, by the way. That explains a lot. <laughs> the tight britches, the tall leather boots. <laughs> Drop and give me 20. <laughs> Get out, everybody. So what were you, as a kid, what were you aspiring to be? Because you ended up being involved in a lot of athletics beyond just the equestrians. Once you got older, you were playing football and you were playing all sorts of sports. Were you all, so you were always athletic. I was, yeah. I was, was that what you were leaning towards as, as a kid, probably? Absolutely. And, I had dreams of, you know playing pro sports i was hardly good enough um played you know basketball and football and uh track you know when i stopped riding um then broke my leg badly in track and uh that ended the football career uh for a while then i moved my folks split up and moved to scottsdale arizona with my mom and focused just on basketball and you know i was recruited to dartmouth didn't get in academically um, so I went to my backup school, which was SC. <laughs> and then, um, but at SC, right before I got there, um, I had back problems. And my mom was dating a guy at the time who was a former punter for UCLA. And he taught me how to punt. And we went in the back uh, yard. It was a corral in Scottsdale that was a dirt corral that was 40 yards long. And he taught me how to, you know, control punt. It wasn't about distance and power. It was about control, control, control. And, you know, I was, we were, you know, just trying to hit spirals that would turn over to each other inside the corral. And eventually the ball was going out of the corral and, and then hitting the neighbor's roof. And I realized, you know, maybe I should pursue this. So I walked on at USC. Um, and the coolest thing about it is I was, I went through spring training, was with the team, practicing with the team for six weeks. Then I got cut. But during those six weeks, I got to be on the same field as Marcus Allen and Bruce Matthews, and Joey Browner, and, you know, it was 
absolutely amazing. And that's, you you know, you knew me during that era until I blew my knee out a second time. And then that was it forever. And yeah. I said, okay, time to put that pipe dream away and focus about on life. So where along the line did you have kind of a, you, you had mentioned that you were making little Super 8 movies when you were a kid. So you had a creative bent. Were you still kind of pursuing that along the way? Because you ended up majoring in broadcast journalism. Broadcast journalism and English. And the first two years at SC, which is a very good journalism school, are very, uh, in the broadcast uh, major, are focused mostly on writing. And finally, junior year, I got my first production class. Literally, you were in those yeah. things that I did. And... Um, Bachelor cuisine. Yep. And then I... That's ridiculous. ridiculous. And some bowling thing. I can't remember. Thursday, bowling. Frank Ferranti was in it. I wasn't in the bowling thing. Uh, And that's when I got bitten by the bug. You cut cut my part. (laughs) Did I? No, I wasn't in it. No, I wasn't even asked to be in that one. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Not that I'm resentful of that. Oh, well. That's okay. There are things that I haven't told you. (laughs) Um... But then I realized it, it really did coincide with getting cut from the team because I it was junior year. I realized I had no – what do you do with an English major? You know, maybe broadcast journalism, you know something, but I did not want to become a journalist. I thought this production thing was kind of cool, and so I went out my junior year and got an internship at Channel 2, yeah. local CBS. I remember there was a period of time where you were telling me literally that it's so funny now because you're – you're, you're, it's so not what you're doing now, even though you're still involved in it. You were talking to me very seriously about, I think I could like make trailers for movies. Like mm-hmm. that was a real serious. Well, my dad was in marketing, marketing yeah. and, and he was involved in that world and he had a couple of connections. And I think I interviewed uh, at a couple of companies, didn't get hired, but my junior year or it was my senior year, I took a, a class at SC in promotion, which was basically you know, cutting commercials for television shows. And I got hired by my professor, who at that time was the vice president of promotions at ABC. And so in a, in a strange way, I got to cut trailers for, at that time, they had movies of the week. Sure. You know, before cable. And so I got to cut trailers for movies on television. And so um, I ended up doing that. You know, and so to this day, that plays a part in the release of every movie because I feel like, you know, I have some uh, – I'm able to communicate with the marketing department like maybe some other right. directors might not be able to because I, I grew up in a marketing family. Right, right. And you did it yourself. So you have yeah. a, that sensibility where you can say this is how I think – besides, you just finished directing a movie. You know the story that you want to tell and you kind of have an idea probably because I've seen you be very involved in the promotion for every yeah. film you've done. And and I will often say, as we're writing a script, this is a trailer moment. This is a trailer moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes after you finish a script, I get a little concerned when I, I think just for a second, before we even start rolling, how would I sell this movie? And if I have trouble selling it, and there have been a couple stories that you know haven't gone forward that I've, I've thought to myself, ooh, this is tricky. I'm not sure how to tell this story in two minutes. It's It's kind of convoluted. And I know I'm in trouble. And it's coming from a marketing background that helps me as I go forward into production on a movie because if I can't crystallize it into a TV guide paragraph or a TV guide sentence, you know, then I'm in trouble. You have always approached things from a standpoint of big picture in that way. And part of it is that you're doing – you've always done 
fairly you know good sized budget Hollywood studio pictures. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing you talk. Uh, probably it was. I'm sure it was Naked Gun because that was your first major directing gig about how much you were testing it. I remember the the you know artist in me going, "Come on, Pete, just you know you know what's going to work and what's oh. not. You know what's funny." But I have learned from watching talking to you and so other people how important it is to get that in front oh, of audiences, my God. like critical. Well, uh, I and, learned. And Apatel will say that, and, and oh, absolutely, everybody will say that. Well, I learned from David Zucker. Uh, and uh, on that movie that what he wanted to do, he learned from the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers basically would take their movie scripts and they'd perform them in dinner theaters across the country before they rolled one foot of film. And the reason was they wanted to know what jokes worked. And it's incredibly economical if you think about it. Of course, we don't have time to do that today. You can't gather the casts that we work with right. and take them on the road to dinner theaters and work out the material. So what the Zuckers would do is they would do a version of that. They would uh, record the audio of the audience reaction so that when we would get back to the edit room and we'd argue about whether a joke got a laugh or a small giggle. Uh, no, I think it was a bigger laugh. Well, let's go to the tape. <laughs> and we'd play the tape. Then I took it to a different level and and I, I I this was kind of a cool thing for me back in the day because night vision cameras were pretty new but Sony had one and I thought well what if we take this a step further what if we point a night vision camera back on the crowd now technically it was a little illegal at the time unless you broadcast it you know that's when it's you're in trouble but we were just doing this for for research purposes we found a whole new level of data because not only now could you hear the laughs but in between the jokes, because Naked Gun was a joke book movie. You know, the movies I've done since then, there's a lot more story to all of them than right. there is in a Naked Gun. So that means there's a lot more time between laughs. So now you can see the faces of people. If they're glued to the screen, if they're yawning, if they're Restless. eating, yeah. yeah, getting up to go to the bathroom. Now there's a whole different level of data you can gain, and you can edit your movie. As a matter of fact, one thing, it's like time-lapse photography. If you fast-forward a night vision tape, it's almost like when you watch a flower growing, you see it wiggle back and forth. When the crowd is still in fast scan, you know they're glued. Yeah. yeah. And when they start, it's restless, it's moving around. And it's now everybody does it. And, and one of the most interesting things as a, a, you know, an odd result was during anger management. Uh, we had the night vision camera on, and there's always a feed that goes up to the proje- projection booth. And the the screening, I remember, was going very well. And then suddenly a couple guys get up from the front row and they leave. And I'm thinking to myself, because I'm three-quarters of the way back, damn it, you know, we have a walkout. That's not good. I thought the screening was going well. Turns out that in the front row, right in front of the night vision camera, the projectionist noticed that a guy was videotaping the screen. So he was pirating the movie. <laughs> and so two police officers, undercover cops, went in and arrested him. That was the walkout, the cops <laughs> escorting him out. When he got out of the theater, he bolted. He escaped. They eventually caught him. And we were on the front page of the L.A. Times three different times because he defended himself. Apparently, they, when they invaded his uh, apartment, they found a whole ring. He, what, and, and in slow-mo, we saw when he got up from the front row, he ejected the tape from his camera and handed it uh, to an Asian man next to him who dropped it in his popcorn bucket. It was an Asian pirating ring. Oh. And uh, he defended himself. And so time and time again, 
Anger management was in the news because the FBI's first evidence, hard evidence of pirating caught in the act was from was our night vision screening. Yeah. Uh, I know I told you this before, but I I remember when you had wrapped, um, well, it was, it was opening weekend of Nutty Professor 2, and I was in New York, I think. And yes, uh, it was opening weekend, and I was down on Canal Street, and I bought a copy of Nutty Professor oh, 2 yeah. on the street. Yeah. And uh, I was going to bring it back to you. And I, I still no, I still have it. You gave it to did me. Did I? Did I? It's like from it? oh, Taiwan or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I still have it. Uh, I've never. I don't. I just like it for the graphics. It's. 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 Yeah. It was ridiculous. It yeah. was. It was awful. Uh, no, but I remember. Oh, and somebody else told me they were on a plane, and it possibly was our last film, Grudge Match. They were watching a pirated version on a plane of Grudge Match. I still don't. But the quality of these pirates are, are usually are terrible. Yeah. Well, they they have gone through the period where it was somebody would take a camera and you know set it up and just hold it the entire time, and yeah. that that was awful. People were watching that. Yeah. It's gotten more sophisticated oh, yeah. now because there's so many different places where you know files are are stored and kept, and and then they float around, and there's usually somebody in some studio somewhere that can access a full movie and yeah. sell it for a lot of money. And well, was, there was a um, uh, Wolverine that was uh, right. I think pirated straight out of a uh, a trailer house. And the same thing happened on Expendables three. I think they just caught the guys yeah. for in London, you know, for the Expendables theft. But you know, so they get a they get a pristine print out of it digitally. Right. It's yeah. yeah it's gotten worse. Um, so let's get you to so we, so you're uh, out of out of college. You're working in local TV. Yeah. You're doing. You're working at uh, Two on the Town. Two on the Town, a local magazine, magazine show. show. Yeah. yeah, producing like field segments, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, to me, the place where your real creativity kind of got the blossom was on the short-lived Friday at Sunset, which was another magazine show, mm-hmm. but it was supposed to take this kind of odd little angle. It was in the same time slot, yeah, right? Yeah, well, it was the Friday night version of Two on the Town, because on Fridays, everyone realized Two on the Town was this very popular, it was called a strip, which mm-hmm. means it ran Monday through Friday at 7.30. And um, it ran for 10 years, very popular, and it eventually was replaced by Wheel of Fortune. But <laughs> Friday night, you know, even CBS, KCBS realized no one stayed home. They were going out to the movies. So they said, let's just do something else on Friday night. Let's try uh, something funny. So they did a comedy version, in a way, of Two on the Town, and it was called Friday at Sunset, and it basically was things to do and places to go on the weekend in L.A. And so my first assignment was uh, the best pizza joint in nice. L.A. And they said, you know, you can choose them, um, and then just give us the information. I said, can I do anything I want? They said, sure, as long as you get the information, address, price of the pizza, whatever. <laughs> I said, okay. And so I did a, a black and white... <laughs> 30 you know 40s kind of gangster movie and um and i got the information and it won a local emmy and they were like huh okay uh best pool halls and i said okay uh can i do whatever i want (laughs) and they said uh okay and so i did a spoof of the color of money and uh in that i put my then girlfriend uh who i later married and one of the first of a recurring role as a whore uh, Linda played a whore in that, and um, uh, and that won another local Emmy. And this kind of kept going, and I started putting a little reel together of these little comedy bits. But they all had always had like 
mostly they were reality TV. It was the early stages of reality TV. And so. Yeah, but you guys were doing some like very. I almost liken it to the way like Ernie Kovacs kind of took the form. Believe me, I'm not saying you're an Ernie Kovacs. Good God, I would never. (laughs) Um, But you were doing this stuff visually that was probably very hard to do at that time and in local TV. I mean, what was the thing you did in Catalina and there was like a flying? What was the? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Did you make the noise of the little? (laughs) Uh, what was that? A flying camera? It was a flying camera, yes. and uh, <laughs> and bottom line is KCBS became my film school. Yeah, because I didn't know what I wanted to do well, when you, I was at. SC. You had this amazing luxury to just be creative. No one cared because no one was watching the show, yeah. and so I got to play. And uh, it well, did was, you, but did you have somebody who, like I, I, I talk about a lot in this podcast about opportunity yeah. which can come out of nowhere and this is it i mean this is this like was here are all the toys and nobody's clamping down on you but yeah. you must have had a champion you must have had somebody i who- had uh well uh mike meadows who's a good buddy of mine and joel tater were sort of the heads of two on the town and dick schmidt was the head of friday at sunset and we're still friends and howard stevens the host of the show still friends and i was i was 24 at the time and i as long as I gave the information, you know, we were finding our way, and a lot of people started watching this show. Um, but the cool thing was, this was when, you know, a few years after the news was shot on 16 millimeter, and now it was shot on tape. But there was this old film department where this guy still was paid a salary to sort of take care of the film. And I would go up there, and oftentimes I would try to make this bright video that we were shooting look degraded like film and we'd play with film and sometimes we'd key you know scratched up Mm -hmm. clear leader over the video to give it a film look right then later we developed a film look process which now is you know it's a basically is what digital film is right it's a film look because if you look at the raw data from any movie shot digitally it looks like video right it goes through a digital process to make it look like film. Well, the grainy black and white thing, too, now is like a, a, a button on your Mac. You yeah. go, bloop. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's it's amazing. But what we had to do back then was so archaic. Yeah. But it was fun. And anyway, got to do a few of those. And then I, what I wanted to do was get out of anything related, related to reality. And so I kept bugging the people at HBO, Chris Albrecht at the time, and Susie Fitzgerald, and they finally let me um, produce and direct uh, an HBO special uh, with Meryl Marco, who was David Letterman's uh, co-head writer on the NBC version of his show. And um, and Harry Shearer was in it, and that went well. And then What the was real, it called again? That was news to us. Right. And then that led to, they said, you want to do another? I said, okay, great. Well, this was in the era of Roseanne, when Roseanne was the biggest thing on television, um, bigger than Cosby. Big, you know, She was like Lucille Ball. And I said, well, Roseanne, I said, oh, I'm going to do something with Roseanne. Well, her husband, Tom Arnold. And I went, okay, who's he? And but I began this relationship with Tom Arnold, and he had some friends who were young in the business uh, named Jim Carrey, Ben Stiller, and Chris Farley. Right. And so I got to work with those guys when, you know, Jim was on In Living Color and Farley was barely in SNL. And Stiller hadn't even done the Ben Stiller show yet. So right. Hardly anybody knew him. You know, it's interesting. You got to give Tom a little credit there. Absolutely. To say, here's my shot. 
oh, and I'm going to give all of these funny friends that I know a chance. I mean, that's a that's a, it was huge. Yeah, it was huge. I remember at that time you telling me there was because Farley wasn't that known yet. Like you said, he I guess he had just become a featured player maybe mm-hmm. on SNL. So yeah. hardly anybody knew who he was. Right. And you guys had a segment where he's walking around a mall and yeah. encountering people. It, and you've told me to this day that may be the hardest you've ever laughed. In oh, my God. Life. It was basically a piece on how to pick up women. Right. And this these HBO specials were still a hybrid. They were part scripted and part reality. And I remember, um, Roseanne, I, I was writing, producing, directing, but I needed help. And so she said, well, I got this friend of mine who writes jokes for me. His name's Jen Apatow. He's 19. I said, okay, uh, cool. So I was 24 or 5 at the time, and so Judd came and helped me. And we'd write bits, but there were huge sections where I said, okay, but this is Farley left off his leash in the Glendale Galleria and just going to pick up on girls. Let's see what happens. (laughs) And literally, he would make this shit up. He would take an orange. He goes, Pete, you got an orange? I'm like, "Uh, yeah, here. And he goes up to a girl, hi, I I don't have any fingernails because I bite them. Can you help start my orange for me? And she's like, starts to peel his orange, and then he just breaks into a love song and starts singing to her. And I am shitting. You're back in like a van or something? No, I'm or? behind. Yeah, I'm hiding always because yeah. we're trying to do this hidden camera. He'd go into a, you know, a piano store and just start riffing, uh, you know, like Will Ferrell, you know, <laughs> singing out loud to people just passing by in the mall. You know, he'd be walking with an ice cream cone and fall on the ice cream cone just so that someone could, oh, I'm so, are you okay? Oh, hi. And just so he could meet the girl. It literally <laughs> was the, the whole show could have been him. Mm-hmm. And I think Tom and Roseanne even realized, okay, hey, this is our show <laughs> and he's a guest star. But he became, Chris became best pals with Tom and even was uh, best man in one of Tom's weddings. And uh, I knew at that point, um, that uh, then, I, well, I will say this, that then Tom got to do the Jackie Thomas show, which was basically a spinoff of Roseanne, and he had Chris on again. Um, and I remember after that episode, again, one of the funniest things ever, just the, the moments in between the takes where Chris would bang into a portion of the set and part of the wall would come off and he'd just start riffing. And it, we couldn't use anything, but the crowd was going crazy <laughs> because he would just perform. He was fearless. Yeah. But they put him in a car, Tom and Roseanne, to their credit, put him in a car right after that performance of the Jackie Thomas show and did an intervention, took him straight to rehab. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I knew at that point after the HBO and the Jackie Thomas show that if he had ever had an opportunity to do a star turn in a feature, because he had been in Coneheads and a couple yeah, other things. Yeah, little bits. Stuff, yeah, little moments. Right. Stuff said, that Lauren produced. Yeah, right. and Airheads I don't think Lauren had anything to do with. Yeah. But, and I said, you know, I would love an opportunity. So along came, you know, after Naked Gun, a really wobbly script called Billy the Third of Midwestern, and it became Tommy Boy. And I just said yes, because... The, by the way, the only scene that remained from the original script, which I kept, because I can prove it, was Chris changing in the airplane bathroom. That was it. Oh, wow. Everything else we, you know, we came up with. But, oh, my um, God. But uh, he, literally, uh, from those seeds, I knew I, I had to work with him on the big screen. Yeah. Um, we, we'll wrap up soon. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. I, I, I think... Uh, if we came full circle, we could talk about, you know, just the catchphrases that people still use from Tommy Boy, you, the, you know, big guy in a little coat. And, you know, so many, uh, to this day, Alex and I 
Um, if like something happens, we drop something or there's a loud noise or one of us kind of fumbles with something, one of us will go, what'd you do? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just ingrained uh, in people's minds and their life. It's, I, I will say this, though. I was very proud of uh, Chris's catchphrase. I said, hey, Chris, come on. This is cool. Even at the time before we knew the movie was going to be a hit. He said, holy shnikes, that's yours, man. Uh, you know, um, fat guy in a little coat, that's yours. Uh, that's going to leave Mark. And Chris said, no, 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 I, I got that from planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm like, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, that was, John Candy said that when he got out of the car. I'm like, are you kidding? You took a line from another movie and made it. The movie's out, Chris. We can't call this back now. But to this day, people think that's going to leave a mark comes from our movie. It was an offhanded remark in yeah. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Chris blew it out like yeah. he would do. Yeah, that's, but, yeah that's so funny. <laughs> All right, so you've had these string of movies. Um, you got through uh, Get Smart, which uh, was a big hit uh, with Steve Carell. And then there was this gap, and that's when the whole world went bananas. Yeah. You know, the economy fell through the floor. Yeah. Um, you had been making, averaging like a movie every two years, basically, yeah. it had yeah. worked out. And then we had a, a drought. Yeah. We had several movies. Um, uh, Get Smart 2, we spent a year on, uh, and that ended up, you know, going away. Uh, again, it's, this was, you know, we were battling writer strike. Uh, studios were going crazy because the DVD market dried up, slashing budgets. Uh, the big budget comedy basically was extinct right. at that point. Yeah. And that's all that I had been doing since Tommy Boy in 1995 were big budget comedies. And now there were none. And so everything I was working on, we did a, spent a year on a version of the Jetsons, spent a year right. on... You well, know, you a, were attached to Fantastic Four, Fantastic the, the original Four, one, right? Yep, yep. and then um, spent two years on that. And, uh, you know, you start looking at the calendar, realizing, boy, you know, what's going on in the business? You know, we've got to, you know, get this back on track. So in that time, you know, started going back to my television roots, created a, a you know, a, a show for NBC that lasted for a year called Hidden Hills, basically an autobiographical story about my family um, and kept busy. You know, that's all you can do is just keep going. And, um, you know, and, and today still we're trying to figure out, you know, putting movies together. We've got one at Disney. Um, a big CG live-action uh, film called Goblins based on a book from Brian Froud, who's an artist, a British artist, who actually, when Lucas was directing the Star Wars, would help Lucas design a lot of his creatures. Um, we've got an action picture that we're, action comedy we're developing um, with uh, Jackie Chan, and then uh, a remake of Harvey, which has been a passion project we've been working on for a while, uh, and we've had De Niro and uh, Christoph Waltz and Jennifer Aniston attached. And uh, every day it's like a horse race. Which one takes the lead? Which one looks like it you know, is gaining a little more momentum? And it's going to be one of those is the next. And in the meantime, you told me, I mean, for a long time you would say no to a lot of TV work just because you felt like, I don't want to be attached to something if, if one of these other opportunities. You know, it was all out of fear, exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't want to be, you know take an opportunity away because I also knew that you know as long as it takes for a film to come together it can fall apart really quickly and if you're not constantly on alert like a firefighter and um, ready to go then I don't want to ever miss that opportunity so I would pass on a lot of television opportunities but now I find that it's a great way to stay limber you know and as budgets are shrinking and I had been you know spoiled by these big comedy budgets 
I started to get scared that could I film a low, on a lower budget pace, right? You know, where instead of shooting a page and a half a day, two pages, you're shooting nine pages, right? And so I challenged myself, and so um, uh, I'm friends with John Wells, and he offered me an opportunity to, after we did a pilot together with Mike O'Malley, to do an episode of Shameless. I thought this is a great opportunity to, first of all, learn that pace right. on a quality show. Um, but also in an yeah, R-rated world. you got a great world. cast, you got good writing, but yeah. In, and in an R-rated yeah. world, because I am a PG-13 boy. <laughs> and But you know me behind the scenes, very R-rated personality, but I'd been sort of stuck in this you know four-quadrant world. And it was a great opportunity to you know try something different. And they've asked you back, right? You've, yeah, no. I, I've done two, and, and Mike is now... Uh, created a show uh, based on LeBron James' life for stars called Survivor's Remorse. It's like the, the entourage in the NBA. Mm-hmm. It's another R-rated show, and um, I did the season opener, and I'm going back in a couple of weeks to do the season finale of that, and that's a lot of fun. Great cast and uh, very well-received, and, and so it's it's been really fun. As I'm waiting for these movies you know, to get off the runway, I'm grateful that, and, and we're in the golden age of television. It, There's I'd such be insane. great work. I'd yeah. be insane not to it's take maybe, some of these opportunities. It's maybe, I mean, I, I get a little bitchy, you know, because you know how much I love movies, and I feel like this past year has just been so shitty. I mean, just like we had great Oscar-caliber films. Well, three maybe great Oscar-caliber yeah. films, yeah. and then some decent stuff, but just a terrible year for movies overall, I think, with a couple of, you know, Guardians, and you know, the Marvel guys have their act together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just feels like the best work is going on on TV, and you see all these big names yeah. from David Fincher on, you know, House of Cards to, you know, on and on and on. Oh, yeah. So many series. That's where really creative artists are saying... It's just a different world, and I can yeah. actually have an impact on something in in the television yeah. format with these other places. And then there was something fun recently that I felt like things came full circle. Steve Carell uh, and his wife uh, developed a show called Angie Tribeca for TBS. It's a and it's very much in the vein of Naked Gun. And he did the pilot. He wrote and directed the pilot, and asked if I would come and and help set the tone for the series. And so that was a lot of fun, but I literally was going back to the very kind of comedy that mm-hmm. I started with and realized how very specific it was and, and how difficult that kind of comedy is. Um, and because I said to him, I said, you know, you've created a monster here because, you know, you, you did a pilot for something that is very hard to do. Police Squad, which, you know, right. was the forefather of Naked Gun, only lasted a few episodes because it is so hard to do. It's a really do. hard form to, to pull off The hours suddenly week. became, you know, crazy <laughs> because it's so exact. Yeah. But it was fun because there's not a lot of people left who know that kind of comedy, mm-hmm. you know? Are you happy with that? Have you seen how that turned out? I have not seen the, the, the final cut of it, but yeah, it was it's very funny. Dave Koechner... Did a oh, cameo. Wow. It's Rashida Jones. You know, it's a, it's a great cast. Are we going to see that? Is that going to see yes, the light of day? Oh, absolutely. The, the, I don't know when the series starts airing, but they completed the first season, and uh, that'll be coming up. Sweet. Yeah. What would you? What uh, of the? Can you say which of the projects you would really like? To, I mean, is Harvey the one that's closest to your heart? You Harvey think? is a is a great reimagining of the Pulitzer Prize winning play. It's very different. This was actually a version that was developed by Spielberg um, with Jonathan Tropper, who's a New York uh, novelist who then created Banshee. 
And um, this adds a whole dimension to why Elwood Dowd sees Harvey. Mm-hmm. It's it's not uh, based on uh, alcohol and magic. <laughs> it's based on uh, uh, a post-traumatic stress of an event that happened, and Harvey is the way that he's coping. Mm-hmm. And um, so it really grounded it and made it spectacular and, and very touching, although it's terrifying to take on a classic like that. Um, and I've had plenty of skull and crossbone warnings from friends, but I can point at a movie like True Grit and say, yes, but, or a movie like Oz, you know, and sure. say, yes, but. Yeah, and I don't know. Harvey comes from an era, and I I'd honestly don't believe it to be, I don't think it's a four-star movie. I think at best it's a three-star movie. It, it, it's hard to watch now. It doesn't hold up yeah. too well. It's a very I think specific. Are, I think there are people who are going to have their affection for yes. it. But um, you you put it out in the right way, it, it, it could be a really quirky, fun comedy. I've read the script. It's There's some really good stuff going on there. Yeah. So I think from, you know, a nostalgia standpoint and, an, you know, feeling like I have a responsibility with that one, that is an important one mm-hmm. for me. Uh, Goblins is something that I'm very excited about for Disney. Uh, you know, I uh, have been working on that for a number of years, various incarnations. I think, you know, I'm excited. You know, we just turned in a script this past week that I think is the best that we've had. And uh, I will say, though, um, you know, Jackie Chan is so charming and so amazing. And, and you know, to spend some time with him in his home country uh, was also incredibly exciting. So honestly... At this point, you know, I love making movies, and it's hard to make movies, uh, so I would root on any of these children. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to end with a downer, but, uh, well, let's not. Drop and give me 20? <laughs> no. I would say that's an, an upper. upper. <laughs> and uh, a downer. <laughs> and an upper. Well, let's just end on um, that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Why I go to a downer after that? We should have been so much funnier in this. <laughs> We're so much funnier. In... Here's the problem. We either are totally funny to each other all the time and no one else, or when we talk seriously about stuff, it's just like... Really boring. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. This, yeah. See, I'm not going to release this one either. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, good luck, my man. I love you uh, like a bro uh, and otherwise. Um, and I can't wait to see what's next and see what part I'm going to play in it. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Pete <laughs> Love you too, pal. Get a monkey. Get a monkey! This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.